This is Foreign Domestic and Forbidden, a podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash. And I am Joaquin Lobo. And for the second time, we'll be your hosts for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you? I'm great. Um, we just had a minor issue with the previous recording. Yes, we uh, had. <laughs> and now we know that we're actually recording a podcast, so I, I'm great. <laughs> how about you, Tim? Yeah, we were, we were funny, irreverent. We were so honored and nothing recorded. So, um, <laughs> so here we are, the second time of the second episode. And we should also mention, and I forgot last time, the music you're hearing is by Springtide, and it's their Coney Island Train Blues, and we got it via the free music archive. A wonderful piece, and thank you for letting us use that. Um, Joaquin, uh, we haven't seen each other in a while. Uh, it's been a while, and you were in Mexico City, and I'm so freaking jealous. How was it? It was amazing. You know, um, in terms of feeling safe because of the pandemic, it was great. Everyone was wearing a mask. Everyone was polite. You had to do this whole reach out to go into any kind of place, bookstore, restaurant, cafes, bars. So I felt pretty safe. And it was great to see friends, to see family, to go to my favorite cantinas, to go to my favorite restaurants and just walking around. You know, Mexico City is a place where you want to walk and yeah. walk and walk. Beautiful. How about you, Tim? Uh, nothing much has happened. The semester is finally over. It was a weird one, I think, for everyone. And I think everybody is glad to go home and isolate a little in their own little mental space just from everything. It was a lot to, to take in. Um, and, and I think just everybody is also just done with the pandemic and just tired of it. Um, but it's good. It's it's sunny. We had a lot of rain, which is great for the North ah, Bay yes. area. We need all the rain we can get. And today it's actually sunny, so it's really cool. If, if by the way, you hear some weird grunting noises or loud breathing, uh, those are my dogs, Kurt and Nozomi, who are with us. So we're performing in front of a live audience today. <laughs> and they seem to be enjoying themselves. They're sort of sleeping and once in a while grunting. Today we have a cool episode for you. We're going to talk a little bit about books that you should read around this time of year. They're not Christmas books. They have nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. But <clears throat> sort of the time after Christmas, before the new year, or maybe even the first week of the new year. Yes. That is, that is Kurt. He's waking up. That time in between the years when the one year is slowly coming to an end, the next one hasn't really quite started yet, um, for me always was a very special time. One where I had a little more money than usual as a kid because an aunt of mine or my grandma would give me some money and I could buy books and records and listen to my new music read the new books, um, and I was left alone. I mean, nobody at that point, uh, once you hit the 26th, which in Germany was a second day of Christmas, 
once you hit that, nobody wanted anything to do with family anymore and everybody's tried to stay out of one another's way. And it was a kind of, to me, a lawless kind of time. I could do whatever, I could go to town, I could walk through the woods, whatever I wanted to do, and nobody kept really tabs on me. And often I ended up reading books and usually those were books on the darker side. And I, so I, I, I kind of remember reading these horror novels or in other ways dark books while also feeling extremely cozy. The Christmas tree would still be there and once in a while we would still light the Christmas tree. We had real candles so we always had to be extremely careful not to burn down the tree. So, so it was this time of cookies, treats, hot chocolate, coffee, tea, all that, but also of reading about things that made you slightly uncomfortable, that were slightly disturbing. And so all our recommendations today, the books we're going to talk about, are that kind of book. Not what you would call festive reading, <laughs> but still reading that you should do during the holidays. And Joaquin, you want to start us off? Yeah, but first let me tell you that I, I was just listening to your recollections of your childhood in Germany during Christmas, and I just remember all these um, celebrations in Mexico right before Christmas. We have what's called the posadas, and the posadas are, I don't actually know how you could call these things in English because, you know, I'm not really a Catholic and I have never practiced this religion on either in Spanish or English, but it's just this thing where you go from house to house and think this is supposed to represent the um, many times that Joseph and Mary were trying to find a place to uh, spend the night with their baby or until the baby was born. So you go from house to house and then then you party, you eat, you drink ponche, which is this really wonderful hot beverage with fruit and if you are grown up with alcohol um, and the food in Mexico City the food around Christmas is just delicious you have this Norwegian cod that you cook with you know the particular Mexican flavor it's supposed to be a Spanish dish but you know we adapt it in Mexico and turn it into something that goes more with our personal taste in food and you have mole con romeritos, you know, all these wonderful things that you eat. It's a great time for eating in Mexico. And if you're a grown-up, it's a great time for drinking. So a lot of people get drunk, and a lot of things happen. Among those things, what happens is family trauma. Just like, you know, everywhere, whatever you have family getting together for a celebration, Thanksgiving in the U.S., Christmas, I guess Ramadan, Hanukkah, etc., etc. Whenever you have family coming together for celebration, there is drama. And the books that I chose have to do with family drama, with family dysfunction. And the first one, Tim, is a book that I read many, many years ago when I was around 17. And it's not a fun book. It's a it's a really <laughs> dark, terrible book. That's set in Buenos Aires, um, and it was written by a 
great uh, Argentinian novelist, Ernesto Sabato. And Sabato was one of the great giants of Argentine literature in the 20th century. And, you know, you could pretty much divide people, not only in Argentina, but also in Latin America, between those who love Sabato and those who love Jorge Luis Borges. And when I was young, I loved Sabato. I was a Sabato guy because he was just dark and tragic and, you know, a little bit melodramatic, if you want. But he had a prose that totally appealed to that very tragic, dark side of my teenage years. Um, the story of the Vidal family that goes back to the wars of independence at the beginning of the 19th century. And, you know, it's a family who is very connected to the history of Argentina and that ends up in total collapse. And, you know, I think that one of the interesting things about this novel is that the collapse of the Vidal family sort of represent the collapse of Argentinian society eventually. You know, Argentina is just such an interesting, tragic place. I lived there for four years. And this was written before the military coup. This was this was written, well, you know, they had military coups always. <laughs> it's like one of those things that are cyclical in Argentina, recession yeah. and military coups. Uh, this was written the year I was born in 1961. So they had military coups before and they had military coups after that. Yeah. Uh, the one that everybody knows is the one that took place in 1976, right? With the military junta yes. taking over. And that lasted until 1983 when the democracy came back. And uh, uh, Raul Alfonsín, who was uh, the, the president who brought back the demo democracy to, to Argentina, but, you know, I, going back to the issue of the dysfunctional family, this very tragic, very dark novel is definitely a must-read around this time. It's a substantial, well-written, powerful account of a family that loses everything to madness, to blood, to incest, to political ruin, to financial ruin, and it's just one of those novels that's going to make you feel good no matter how terrible you <laughs> you're feeling yeah <laughs> just that kind of uh schadenfreude effect wonderful wonderful my first one was written in 1971 or published in 1971 and is called krabat and in english it was also published as krabat and the sorcerer's mill um the author is Ottfried Preussler, who in Germany is mainly known for his children, children's books. Um, but this one, even though it won actually a literature prize for young readers, is really a completely different beast. Uh, to me, it's, it's just literature. Yes, um, the main character is a young boy, sort of around puberty. Uh, when we first see him, but the subject matter and the way the book is written really is just literature. The story is relatively simple. Krabat, a young boy, um, an orphan who is very poor and lives as a beggar, one Christmas actually, around the Christmas time, just after Christmas. That's actually the only connection to Christmas arrives at a mill and agrees to become the apprentice of a 
sorcerer, of a dark magician. He's in cahoots with the devil, and he is he brings the number of dwellers in the mill back to 13, and when he arrives, everything is frozen over, the large wheel is frozen over, but once he signs the contract that makes him an apprentice, the whole thing starts up again. The novel is based on a really old legend, a folk hero, Kabat, um, from the 18th century. But to my knowledge, it's really the only novel. Um, there was one written um, in the former East Germany about the same material, but it was, while it started out really well, it was then used to basically for propaganda. He became sort of the working class hero and became a worker's story. And, and it, while it, as I said, it, it started out really well, but then you could see it, it become very heavy handed and political in, in weird ways. This book, however, is, while it's very simply written, it's very artfully simply written. I won't quite put put it in the Hemingway category, but, but still this, this attention to very simple language where you feel the craft in every sentence is striking. And um, the, the adventures that Krabat has are fun. Uh, they're very dark, but never of a too disturbing darkness. Um, there's there's a lot of suspense. There's a lot of tension, but um, it's it's always transcended by really the language and just the beauty of his story. The red thread that that goes through the story is Kabat falls in love with a village girl who he first meets when she's singing, and yeah, that provides a little bit of a of a plot line, but, but basically it's, it's about him living in the mill, the adventures he has with his fellow apprentices. And it's, I first encountered it in Germany through an animated movie that was done shortly after the novel came out and, uh, by a Czechoslovakian animator. It's a beautiful movie, um, but the book is I think actually even more beautiful and very lyrical and just a revelation, dark and yet very poetic. Um, and we will uh, put all the novels and the authors in the show notes. So if you're interested, if something strikes your interest, uh, you can read those uh, wherever we publish the podcast. Tim, I have a question. You read this book in German originally? Yes, I did. How does it translate into English? I haven't read actually the English because version. Because you're talking about this very specific type of language. And then my, my next question is, how does it German translate into English, generally speaking? Is, I mean, is this a question that makes sense at all? Yeah, it does. Um, I think Kabat would probably be relatively easy to translate I mean, there are certain things, certain turn of phrases where, where the way the syntax works that are a horror to translate. Right. Um, 
I usually write in English. I wrote one book of mine in German because there was just no time to write it first in English and then translate it into German. And so I wrote it in German and translated it into English afterwards wow. for the English publication. That's interesting. And that, I mean, it, 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 it wasn't super difficult, but it's always very, very frustrating to me to A, write the same book twice, right. um, because I already know what happened, and it's not the discovery of a translator discovering a new text, new to you, that you then translate and make your own. It was already mine, and then just wrote it again. And to, to lose the little idiosyncrasies of the language and have to flatten out some of the phrases. And uh, to me, it felt like an okay compromise. I'm happy with a translation, but still uh, with my English books and with my German books, I, I prefer the, the original. There's, there's something in that first doing it that is really hard to, to capture in a translation. Un unless you sort of rewrite the book yes. with your you know, with your English voice, with your English consciousness, not thinking in German, or in my case, not thinking in Spanish, but thinking in English, writing in English, not translating, right? But that's a different book. It is a very different book, yeah. And, I mean, I never... It, it, it was weird. I mean, that, that part of... Uh, I wrote the, the German book in 20... Oh, 2013, 14, and and I, well, no, actually, 2012. But mm -hmm. um, but it was it was weird because my German is really lousy at this stage, and <laughs> I speak two languages lousily, and um, but I, I rediscovered the language, and mm. and I rediscovered some of the beauty of writing in German, some things that you can do, little tricks, little little playful things that are not available in English that right. I really enjoyed rediscovering, but it also gave me really nightmares and I, and I didn't like it. Sometimes I would suddenly break out into German with with American friends and they would just look at me that's, like, what's going on? That's and, and I accessed so an entirely different pool of thought. and. I'm a big believer that languages encapsulate a country's or region's um, thought processes, that, that a language gives you also a certain kind of ideology. And that right. was, it, it felt way too close to home for me. I, 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 I was very happy not to live in Germany anymore and writing in German felt very claustrophobic. So I had some fun rediscovering the language and playing with the language, but it also felt like I was moving back with my folks. It, it, was, it was not a good feeling. Uh, this is so interesting, Tim, because something very different happens to me with Spanish, because I, I always wrote in Spanish. I never make that shift to, to writing in, in English. And even though I have 
written a lot of English. I have not published those those books in English. I have a couple novels that I, I haven't published because I, I just I don't think they're good enough to be published. But one thing that I realize is that my Spanish is pretty much the Spanish that I used to speak back in the 80s when I left Mexico. Uh-huh. Because just like lang- you're saying something really interesting, that language and, and has some, some kind of unity with a very specific ideology, right? A set of values, a consciousness. Yes. But at the same time, language is sort of um, a representation of a very specific time and space. So by not living in a place where I spoke language every day of my life since 1986 that I came in, the, you know, to, 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 to California, I sort of left the Spanish suspended around that time. So my Mexico City Spanish is very much from the 80s, even though I continue to write present day in that language and I make conscious efforts to, to you know, upgrade it and actualize it and to, to, to stay current with the Spanish that is spoken in do, Mexico. Do readers recognize that, that it's a different... I don't know, because quality. I'm very good at disguising that and I, you know, I sort <laughs> of... <laughs> And I don't know how many of them might be listening to this show, but I think that I, I not that I want to deceive them, but I, I have to do that in order yeah. to protect my integrity as a writer. I don't want to come across as, you know, uh, someone who who is not speaking uh, Spanish that, that makes sense to people these days. Yeah. And what you're saying about your German is that you just sort of unplug yourself from 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 German. Yeah, and that's why when I when I started writing that book, I felt very acutely that a lot of my German sounded archaic. Right. Um, and not the kind of German I knew from visiting it once in a while. It it sounded like something else entirely, and it frightened me a little. Because sometimes I was, is, is that still German? <laughs> or, or am I mixing the languages, translating in my mind? Right. Um, but, yeah. But but probably you, you also have developed your own brand of Spanish. Because, of course, you have developed it too here over the years. I mean, and, and it might have gone on in a different trajectory. Well, the native language of an immigrant it's a very different thing from the language that is spoken back home uh, in my case what's interesting is that i married an argentinian woman and she speaks a different kind of spanish oh. so even though i speak spanish every day of my life it's not mexican spanish i speak spanish with someone who speaks argentinian spanish <laughs> so it's a mess yeah now imagine the spanish my son speaks who is you know argent max uh-huh he speaks a Spanish that is like a blend of Argentinian and Mexican Spanish with, of course, a dash of, of, of English, right? Because yes. he was raised in the U.S. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's kind of an interesting segue for the, the next book that I, I want to share with our uh, listeners. And I chose this book. It's called Bread Givers by Ansia Yesierska. And... It's a really good book written by by a by a Jewish American writer who tells the story of a young woman 
the daughter of a rabbi, uh, immigrants in New York around 1920. Um, um, she comes from, she, she would be, you know, second generation American, if you consider the immigrant parents the first generation. And she's going through this really interesting negotiation, personal struggle with the family, trying, you know, who don't want her to become an American because they're very orthodox Jewish family. And they live in the Lower East Side, which at the time was a Jewish ghetto, and didn't have any contact with people from other ethnicities in a New York that at the time was, you know, very diverse, with a lot of immigrants from, from many places, just like now. Um, but communities were very, very closed. And in the case of this young woman, Sarah Smolinski, the, the struggle that she goes through is to try to break away from that family, strong family ties and all the, all the obstacles that they put in front of her so she doesn't go out of that family circle, out of that linguistic circle. So she, you know, she, she, they speak Yiddish at home and she moves outside of the house in English and, you know, she wants to be an American. And for her, that's a different case because as a second-generation American, uh, the anxiety of identity is very different. You know, she's claiming something that's natural to them, and you and I are claiming something different, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird um, because you. When do you know that you've actually made it? Where are you always? kind of going in the back of your mind, oh, uh, everybody knows that I don't belong or I don't look right, I don't sound right. Or well, it has to do with sound. It has to do with the sound of American English, I found. Yes. Because, for instance, as it is obvious to our listeners, I have an accent, a strong uh, Spanish-Mexican accent. And I've lived in this place for 35 years. And I think of myself, if I want to consider myself an American, I have a claim to being an American. But do I sound American? You know, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's one of the questions that the immigrant asks uh, themselves. Yeah. And then what does it mean to sound American? Because there are many ways of sounding American, right? Yeah, people constantly, like, as soon as I open my mouth, they're like, oh, I hear an accent. I, I can never just be somewhere there's always the reminder of oh you're not from here and people don't try to be mean but um after 25 years of living here i'm like yeah <laughs> i'm like i'm from here from like just like two blocks down exactly so, yeah but you know you go back as in the case of this book this great novel breakgivers you go back a hundred years and you can see sarah smolinski asking herself some of these questions what does it mean to be an american i really want to be an american right yeah. i don't want to be that i'm not i don't want to be the girl from the lower east side i want to be a, an american i just want to be like a normal american girl and this book is very interesting because it is also the account of that the struggle of the poor immigrant that pull you know and push between the native uh culture and the ones who come from outside and of course i mean as soon as i said native you know i have to ask myself who are the true natives of this of this land it's not 
it's not the Anglos who were here before, it's not the Irish, it's not the English, it's not, you know, all these people who who came before the 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 Jewish immigrants. You know, it's it's the Native Americans, it's the natives who were here before. So who is the real American, right? Yeah. yeah. The other thing that um, and I'll go back to the episode we lost because we didn't record. That's very interesting. We we're having a really cool conversation, Tim, about not only the definition of identity, but also the definition of nation. And we're talking about common spaces. And we're saying something along the lines that, you know, we don't really have a lot in common with other Americans. And we might have more in common with people with whom we associate in other type of communities, such as social media, yeah, virtual I, communities. Yeah, and I think that that connection is really an important one. Uh, that Okay, many people still think in very national and nationalistic tones and, and all that, but, but there is really a globalization at work that sometimes can be annoying. Uh, uh, social media can be definitely annoying. It can be destructive in some cases, uh, for sure. And right now in the news, we hear a lot about how Facebook, Instagram, all those contribute to bad self-image, uh, to being bullied and all that. But there's also the growing community of like-minded people just across the globe. I can see posts from people in Japan, Korea, comment on them, they comment back, and there's an exchange of images, ideas, of experiences even, that, okay, they're fractured, it's not like a deep friendship in the way we usually define friendship, but it's a way of communicating across borders where nationality is really not important. Often I don't know actually where people live whose post I see and comment on and, and, and have conversations on these platforms. I don't know where they live sometimes until maybe a second or third comment. And so um, there are, it's, it's a kind of new nation building where you find like-minded people and it doesn't matter whether you're american australian korean indian but you share in a passion you share in something you do or uh in a common interest um i'm totally and <laughs> that's a weird admission but i'm totally into watches and there are people from all <laughs> over the world posting images of their watches and exchanging information about watches, vintage watches, uh, new releases, and all that. And well, if Instagram is, the na if Instagram is a, a, a nation of, of citizens who post images and thoughts and text, you belong to the state of, 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 the, of, of the land of the watches within that nation, right? That's like a sub-nation, like a state of that nation. Each one of these communities yeah. are yeah. part of that federation of communities that create the larger virtual nation. To, to a large degree, it's, it, it's a very welcoming community, actually. And, and one, it's funny uh, because a, a lot of my students, I, I feel, don't really pay attention to 
place and location in their stories anymore because I feel that location and place is getting less and less important <laughs> because I can I can sit on my bed and scroll through my feed and I am in a thousand countries in, right. and I'm in this headspace that doesn't really have a place. I could be anywhere and be doing the exact same thing. And so in that regard, I think nationality or citizenship, all that become much, much less important. It's still important in politics. It's still yeah, important. But it, but makes you, a, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're in the U.S. where, you know, half the country hates the other half. We don't like those people. They don't like us. But in that virtual community, let's say your, your, the community of the watches, right? I don't know how you would call it. I'm sure you have a better name for no, that. No, no, that. But that's a community that you choose. You choose that of your own volition. You want to be there. In the U.S., a lot of people don't even want to be here anymore, right? We're here because we have to. We don't have a choice. But the virtual community, you want to be there. That makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, there's also competition. <laughs> who, has, who has the newest this and the shiniest that and, and all that? But, but by and large, it's a very peaceful, it's a very relaxed atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we're like... In, in that space of interest, in that space of shared interest, we're, we're growing slowly into a society of no borders. But then we're always reminded when we look at politics and so on that there are still, of course, groups of people who really want borders and insist on right. borders and, and define themselves in those old terms when really even those people in their daily lives are reaching across borders all the time. Yes, but there is a great number of, especially among members of Generation Z, that uh, have a very different understanding that you and, I, you and I might have just because, you know, they're digital natives. They grew up with this and they, yeah. they relate to those uh, venues to that to, to to that specific kind of medium in a way that I cannot even imagine. I mean, I not because I don't have the ability or the imagination, but for them it's something that's just natural. Yeah. They grew up with that, and they make of, for instance, TikTok something that you and I don't do, and maybe. As you suggested a while ago, maybe we should have a TikTok account for. Yeah, we need this. one. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, we just look so old. So my sense is that TikTok communities, which I don't really understand because I'm too old to understand them, uh, offer um, a sense of community that's different to the ones that Instagram and Facebook offer to people who are from other generations. And I see my 14-year-old son spending too many hours uh, with his cell phone on TikTok. I have no idea what he's, what he's doing, but I trust that he's intelligent enough and sophisticated enough to find something that's a little bit more than brainless entertainment. Yeah. That's the case for some of my college students. Because they, I know that they're doing deeply interesting things with TikTok. I mean, people have always looked at new media as destructive and I all know. that. And, and every new medium is, of course, in some ways destructive. Yes. I mean, it gets rid of something that, that came before and that people cherished. But, um, but there are also new dangers 
of course, and we see a lot of that in the news too. I agree, but I think that we tend to be too suspicious of that those things that we don't understand. But I, I want to trust, especially this generation, generation C, because I mean they're far more sophisticated than than we were than Xers and millennials, yeah. and they're the ones who are going to fix the mess, and that's a burden that they don't deserve and they're dealing with that already in, i think in a in a really terrific way yeah we should not forget that the first european settlers were not fond of fiction and <laughs> <laughs> they would not be happy with our podcast about books so uh, fiction was not really um appreciated at all and the devil's work and <laughs> because it excited emotions i know i mean go back to um, Hawthorne. No? I'm thinking of yeah. Hawthorne and writing about uh, New England, uh, yes. Puritans, Scarlet Letter, those magnificent stories that tell you so much about the character of, you know, those uh, founders of uh, early uh, American consciousness. Yeah. Well, I, my next book here is um, is not one you would associate with Christmas, I think, at all. And and sorry for that. Uh, don't read it if you're faint of heart. Um, it's <laughs> it's it's everything horrible uh, in a relatively slim volume. It's the Painted Bird by Jerzy Kozinski a 1965 novel about a six-year-old boy, about six years old, who during World War II traveled on foot through Eastern Europe and is trying to hide, find shelter, find food, and experiences really everything from just the most brutal violence to rape uh, to people killing each other why I put this on there is, um, to me, the violence portrayed in the book has always been somewhat secondary. I mean, it's an integral part and it needs to be there. But to me, the writing has always transcended that violence. Or transcend sounds kind of weird, um, sort of very old schoolish. Do we really believe in transcendence anymore? But it makes sense of the violence the the book has a lyricism a richness of language a richness of texture that guides you through the violence through the horrible events in the novel so that you never feel alone but there's always the integrity of the book and it, hmm. and it so i i have always found this type of novel and especially the painted bird mm. the painted bird extremely soothing and the beauty of the language lets me experience the horrors of war safely somewhat safely and that's a quality i think that is underrated maybe these days um because of course it's an upsetting book and of course there will be people who don't agree with me and say no this is this is this is traumatizing and if you have 
had experiences that are portrayed in the novel. You might not be in the mood for reading about that, uh, absolutely. But when was it published, Tim? It's Painted Bird. Uh, 1965. Oh, okay, so yeah. we're talking two books from the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 60s, early 70s. It fucked so. up time, yeah. right? Yeah. Complicated time. It's a very complicated that's, time. That's the decade when we were born, by the way, the 60s. So yeah. we're, we're children from a messy time. And that's a quality, these very graphic descriptions of everything, I think for 2021, for 2021 taste might not really uh, sound right. But what, what do we do with those books, Tim? I mean, these are, from my perspective, pertinent books. You know, they're well written, they're powerful, they they have a reason of being and I'm not ready to discard them to do away with these books what do we do with these dif difficult books I'm not really sure it's it's getting harder and harder to talk about literature as literature and not as something that threatens people and again I mean like if 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 you have just witnessed a horrifying scene in real life and then yeah you probably don't want to sit down and watch a really violent crime thriller on on television that might not be what you what you're in the mood for or there but by and large um i think it's very important to 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 understand how literature can actually inform us about these things in a very safe and inspiring instructional manner instructional sounds horrible it sounds like sort of like like teaching or so but but really i looked at these books in my youth as as older brothers as yeah. as as people who could tell me the things about the world that i hadn't experienced yet and and make the passage easier for me explain things about them and and to me a book like the painted bird is not exploitative it's not reveling in its own nastiness but it's saying these things happened they exist i'll show you but it's a safe tour i'm your guide and in that sense i'm very thankful and grateful to to a book like this because no i i was not a six-year-old child during world war ii but it allows me to live that safely and maybe understand a little bit of that. Well, that's, that's the value of the storytelling. No, I mean, going back to that romantic image of people around the bonfire listening to whatever the old guy or the old lady is saying. I mean, that's, that's why we watch movies. Uh, that's why we watch HBO series. And that's why we read novels. And we go all the way back to, to the Greek tragedies, to Shakespeare, to to all the classics and, you know, the continue with contemporary fiction, crime thrillers, horror narratives, etc. because through these stories, we, we figure out what to do in real life, right? You, you figure out what to do with your trauma, what to do with your pain, how to love, how to hate, how to suffer in silence, how to yell and scream. And without books, without stories, then who teaches you the stuff? I mean, yes, 
I also resist the idea of this as something didactic. You know, it's not teaching, but you know, you learn something from 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 the experience of others. Yeah. And thanks to that, you manage to stay alive. And 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 you you can learn about the things that dark things that might not be part of your life, but you can at least approximate. Like you, I mean, learning by books is, of course, always like a like a strange thing because do we really learn anything? Or if we encounter the same things, are we as helpless as we would have been without reading the book? And I think that's a fair question. But still, we, as much as we can learn by words, okay. we can put ourselves in the shoes of people who have experienced more than ourselves. But also learning doesn't have a positive value you can also learn terrible things from books yes and i'm someone who has learned terrible things from books including this book that i spoke about on the first part of the program on heroes and tombs by ernesto sabato i learned how to be a very negative depressive a tortured young man so when people tell me talk about the positive values, the benefits of reading, I always fire back saying, no, I owe, you know, horrible things to, to reading fiction. I've learned terrible things. I've seen a lot of things that I should not have seen. So this like middle class uh, bourgeois idea of literature as something good and valuable and positive that enriches your soul, blah, 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 blah. I completely disagree with that. I think that fiction also has the potential of, you know, teaching you horrible things and, and tragic and dark things about life. Still, I'm, I'm kind of grateful for everything that I've seen through books. I mean, there, there are books that are really, I, I don't think, very good. And, and of course, like, what, what is a good book? That's a whole nother, that, that is 10 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> what is a good book? But but I think there are there are mean spirited people writing books and right. um, um, for example somebody like Mickey Spillane who I kind right. of like it's it's yeah. a very I read Mickey Spillane uh, it's a I, I kind of oddly adore him I, I saw him once in Berlin read from from oh, really? from, from a book and yeah and he talked about how he works from eight to twelve and one to five and and just writes his books and but there's something oddly mean-spirited in his Mike Hammer novels. That reminds me of James Elroy, Mad Dog Elroy. You know, these bitter old white guys who have all this trauma and all this anger that write these books, you know. They love cops and they love crime and they love blood and they love dead women. A lot of these guys love dead women and their books are always killing women. They yeah. open the books with yeah. dead women, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, the jury, Mickey Spillane's most famous novel is, I mean, culminates in exactly that. The, the Black Dahlia by James Elroy, or My Dark Places, which is the account of how his mother was murdered. But but even even those books, I feel, are kind of necessary to read yes. and, and interesting to read. Absolutely. And, and, and good to read and then talk about them and give them context. And, and even though, yeah, I, the jury is is not a masterpiece. I mean, it has its place in in history and has an interesting place in in the history of the genre. Um, and and you can talk about it, you know. And uh, you don't have to condone it. It's a, in many ways, a terrible book. But um, 
but still it's 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 something that happened that people reacted to strongly and so to give it context is i think a really good experience and venture and to go back to the jersey kosinski book you know very dark book very graphic difficult to read painful i don't think that they're good or bad i think they're important yeah and you're not going to enjoy them you're going to find something that's appealing that's captivating yeah but it's not that kind of pleasure that you know you're going to feel great after reading this book you're probably going to feel great for for a different reason yeah and that's that's also fair to say of of james elroy you know very very dark books written with a lot of anger uh but there is something about them that makes them appealing yeah. and valuable there is yeah. value in that too what is your next choice <laughs> Well, just to continue with the topic of family dysfunction, this is actually a really interesting case of a book because it is not a novel, but treats like a novel. It is a work of nonfiction that in a way is a revolutionary book, edited, written and edited by Michel Foucault. Oh. Michel Foucault, who was very interested in the relationship between the individual and the state, very interested, therefore, in in issues of crime and punishment. Um, so Foucault came upon the case of this uh, young man in uh, early 19th century, a uh, young man who in 1983, I'm sorry, in 18, 18, 1835, I apologize, 1835, uh, decided that he needed to kill his mother because she was an awful person and he needed to free himself and the father from the presence, from the very toxic, we would say these days, toxic uh, negative presence on the planet of this woman. Uh, so he kills the mother and this is something that happens in Normandy in France. And in the process of killing the mother, he ends up killing the sister and the little brother. And the title of the book is I, Pierre Riviere, Having Slaughtered My Mother, My Sister, and My Brother, A Case of Parasite in the 19th Century, edited by Michel Foucault. This is a book that it's uh, like a collage, a coming together of legal documents, of personal accounts, of testimonies, that Michel Foucault put together. So it reads like a really, you know, straightforward narrative, um, um, you know, an, a, a series of documents that end up painting a portrait of, of, this, of this legal case that, of course, is probably one of the worst crimes committed around that time in France in the 19th century. But it's certainly... Um, a passionate story for those of us who love crime, crime narratives. And I think that it's a great Christmas, Christmas reading. <laughs> 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 and again, like, like Tim said, we'll, we'll, put together, we'll put together the information, the recommendation of these books on, on, the, on Instagram and our Twitter account. 
I heard of that book. I've never read it. I'm really, really looking forward to reading that. Sounds sounds like a fantastic Christmas read. I fell in love with this book when I read it in Spanish for the first time a long time ago, probably 40 years ago. I hate to say that 40 years ago. It sounds awful, but that's probably the case. And it was, I think, published by Tusquets, Editores, my, my press these days. I publish my books with Tusquets and... and uh, press uh, uh, publishing house from from Catalonia from Barcelona and they made these beautiful books and they had the best titles and uh, and I, I read it back in the day and I lost the book and then I found it also many years ago in the English translation and I highly recommend it wonderful well my last pick is Orhan Pamuk's Snow Orhan Pamuk, a Turkish writer, mostly writing about Istanbul. In, but this title is a little bit different in that the protagonist, Ka, a poet, uh, revisits Turkey um, after living for many years in Germany. He's supposed to report on a series of suicides uh, by young girls who were not allowed to wear their headscarves, falls in love, uh, steps into weird webs of intrigue, uh, local politics, all that, and starts composing a series of poems in his mind that he doesn't write down. When I read it first about ooh, 15, 20 years ago, I read it in very small portions because the language is really very dense, heavily textured, and really approaching poetry. There was nothing I had read up to, up to that point that even compared to this book. And Orhan Pamuk, also in his other books like The Black Book uh, or My Name is Red, really brought to my attention some of the very bookishness, bookness of writing. The highest compliment here in, in America for a book is often that it's made into a movie, that the language translates into a movie that you can play in your head. And, and people often say, oh, I can imagine everything very easily and it plays like a movie in my head. And they mean it as a compliment. Um, here with Snow, Nothing easy as that really happens. It's so complex in the relationships between Ka, the immigrant who returns to Turkey, the local politicians he meets, his investigation into the suicides. And, and you, you notice just how much is able to happen on a page that you just can't portray in a movie. It really, every page reminds you of, this is writing. This cannot be translated easily, if at all, into a movie. And that you can do on a page something very, very differently, something that no other medium can really accomplish. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a marvel. I, I, I was really stunned by the book. I hadn't read anything like that before. It made me realize just how separate writing is from the other arts in very good ways. Because often, because writing or reading 
is not a very immediate experience because we have to go line by line by line by line. We can't listen to something. We can't just watch something and be sucked into the experience easily. That, that sort of writing is this more tedious form of entertainment or this more tedious medium that makes it hard for you to engage with it. But Orhan Pamuk is one of the writers who really go with it and make it as complex and strange and bookish uh, as they can and, and make you aware of the endless possibilities that language has over every other medium. Just a fantastic book. I, I love that. I, I like Pamuk very much. He won the Nobel Prize, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I don't remember. Um, but I always thought of Pamuk in terms of the, the writer of the place, the deep connection that he keeps with, with Istanbul. But also I think of Pamuk as someone who is a very interesting sort of liaison between Germany and Turkey because he spent a lot of time in, in Germany. He's written about characters moving from one place to another. And Turkey in a way has a you know, similar relationship to Germany that reminds me of the relationship that Mexico has with the U.S. You have a lot of Turkish immigrants in Germany just like you have a lot of Mexican immigrants in the, in the U.S. So I... I I, I feel a kinship and a, this affection for, for Pamuk, but also a great admiration because he's someone who understands uh, also the relationship between object and language and how, how language and objects are, are loaded with, with meaning. There is a book that it's sort of the catalog of, of his uh, Museum of Memory that... I think it's an actual place in, in Istanbul where he's gathered many of those objects that are loaded with a very specific meaning in relation to that place and the specific memories of not only his childhood, but, but the life of the city. And I can think of many writers who have that kind of connection with, with their place, you know? I, th I know you love, for instance, Paul Oster, that you appreciate Paul Oster very much. And I don't know if Paul Oster and New York keep that kind of relationship, yeah, yeah. just like Pamuk and, and Istanbul. Yeah, or Peter Aykroyd with London. Right, right. Yeah. But, but I think that's, uh, that, that's so, sort of like a, like a love affair no? between uh, writers and, and their cities that is, is not very common. Yeah. Yeah, and, and his writing is very layered. He really makes you aware of that you never step into, into a new situation, that wherever you arrive, you're stepping into the history of a place. All kinds of things have happened before you arrive there and are still happening, and you don't realize them. Just much like a detective steps into a case that has evolved over a long period of yeah. time, Wherever we go, wherever we arrive as immigrants, as visitors, as tourists even, there's a context that we might not be able to grasp, but that it's there. And all the layers are shown in snow. And that makes it a very, very complex read. You know, I, I'm loving this conversation, but I think we have to stop, unfortunately, because 
We are around one hour. Oh, is it that time? Yes. And uh, remember, uh, Tim, we we talk about uh, um, a new ending for the for the show, uh, the foreign domestic and forbidden list, the FDF list. Exactly. Try it at your own risk. Um, exactly. Try it at your own risk. So so be aware. We warned you. Quickly, you know. Make a few suggestions of things, things, places um, that you might want to try. Exactly. So, what is your first recommendation today? I'm going to recommend a bookstore. Bookstore that I love in Berkeley, California called Moe's Bookstore. If you find yourselves in Berkeley, you have to go to Moe's Bookstore on Telegraph Avenue. And spend a lot of money because they have amazing stuff. And it's one of the last few independent bookstores in the region. And, you know, very old, very uh, traditional, and a place that writers and readers from the Bay Area love. How about you, Tim? I'm going to recommend a restaurant. And I hope the pandemic didn't kill it. It's a restaurant in Berlin, in the district of Schöneberg, and it's called Die Feinbäckerei, or just Feinbäckerei. And you can get the most amazing Käse Spätzle, cheese <laughs> spätzle, spätzle uh, there um, with a mushroom sauce. It's, it's awesome. Um, I went there first in the late 80s and then again in 2011 that was the last time i was there so i hope it's still there um and it's it's just the most amazing food you can have your beer there as in pretty much every german restaurant dogs are allowed they can sleep under the table it's a lovely place they have board games so you can play board games while you wait or while you eat and as I said, the most amazing pasta, Käse Spätzle you've ever, you've ever had. Amazing. All right, that was it. We have to wrap it up. Thank you for listening. This was the second episode. And yeah, I hope you're still there. And thank you. And happy holidays. This will come out on the 23rd. So happy holidays to you. We hope that you have a wonderful time. And also, as we say in Germany, a good slide into the new year. Felices fiestas. Saludos. Thank you for listening.